Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast covering documentary film. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival, and coming up in February, the Stranger Than Fiction series at New York's IFC Center. Now it's January, and our attention turns to Park City, Utah, for the Sundance Film Festival. On this episode, I speak with a key documentary sales agent, Josh Braun of Submarine Entertainment. He's been instrumental in negotiating distribution deals for many high-profile films at Sundance, from Supersize Me to Wiener. Before we get to that interview, I want to preview what to expect from this year's Sundance documentaries. I had the chance to get an early look at many of them. Political and social issue films have always been a staple at the festival, but this year, even more so. The curation feels very much like a response to Donald Trump's election. Environmental themes are prominent, starting with Al Gore's follow-up to An Inconvenient Truth. The new film is called An Inconvenient Sequel, directed by Bonnie Cohen and John Shank. It plays on the opening night of Sundance and will be released later this year by Paramount Pictures. The threat of animal extinction gives urgency to the film Trophy, about big game hunting in Africa. This film is bound to stir debate for raising questions over how to best approach animal conservation. With exquisite cinematography, filmmakers Shaul Schwartz and Christina Klausiau profile owners of big game reserves, rare animal breeders, and their hunting clients. These stakeholders believe their business is essential to saving animals. As they like to say, if it pays, it stays. In this scene, we watch a controlled effort to save rhinos by putting them under sedation and cutting off their horns. Rhinos with horns make them prime targets for poachers. The horns are illicitly sold to the Asian market for apocryphal customs of healing and virility. The person overseeing this effort to remove horns is John Hume, the owner of a South African ranch that has 1,500 rhinos on its grounds. He explains his horn harvest. The operation goes very quickly. It's painless. Probably less danger than a human being having its wisdom tooth out. He will be back with his friends within minutes. It'll take about two years before he goes through the same procedure again. And we know that the poachers prefer rhinos with long horn and pointed horns. Every two years to save his life, I think if he had an opinion to give to you, he would say, I'm very happy to sacrifice, sacrifice my horn in order to save my life. South Africa banned the sale of rhino horns in 2009. But Hume is waging a campaign to end the ban so that he can gain a revenue stream to finance rhino breeding. I truly believe that I have the recipe to save the rhino from extinction. Sell the horns, keep the rhinos alive, and breeding more and more. I will give you a challenge. Give me one animal that's gone extinct while farmers were breeding it and making money out of it. There's not one. Not one. 
Trophy is one of 16 films playing in Sundance's U.S. documentary competition. Several films in that section deal with violence in the lives of African Americans. In the film The Force, director Peter Nix spends two years in Oakland, California, with deep access to the city's police force. He started filming in 2014, during a time of high tension over police violence. In this scene, police captain Laron Armstrong addresses a classroom of young cadets. So I was born and raised in, in Oakland. I was born and raised in, in West Oakland, right there where the Black Panthers started. And so in my community, you know, it wasn't, uh, you wasn't viewed, police officers wasn't viewed as something positive in the community, right? We were raised to stay as far away from them as you can, right? We used to run from the police just because we would see them, right? We'd just be like, oh my God, they're gonna do something to us, let's run, right? This is how you were raised. This is what you were told. That's based on the history of this city. That's based on the experiences of black people in this city. Addressing the same class is a black community activist, Pastor Ben McBride. Although some of us might say, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Man, all that stuff was hella long time ago. But what I'm lifting up is the past stole your identity and ran up an incredibly high bill. And so many of us might show up in the story and be like, it's all BS. These folks complaining about stuff. These folks just make, making a, a, a mountain out of a molehill. But the past stole your identity and it has run up an incredibly high bill. And everything that we do is either going to help run that bill up or it's going to bring that bill down. As the film team rides along with officers, we witness the difficult choices they have to make in fast-breaking situations. 27, westbound foothill, code 33. Hey, he's running right at you, whoever's coming towards me. Right there. Don't, don't move! Don't move! Don't move! The Force looks at how an institution copes with violence. Another film takes a first-person view at how a black family was traumatized by a killing 25 years ago in Long Island, New York. The film is titled Strong Island. It's the directorial debut of Yancey Ford, a transgender filmmaker who formerly worked as a producer for the PBS documentary series POV. Yancey was raised as a girl came out as queer in college in the early 90s, and more recently transitioned as a man. In the film, Yancey speaks to camera. My parents wanted to raise remarkable kids. Our blackness and what it meant to be black in America and how to survive being black in America and the resilience that needed to be black in America as well as the pride was something that our parents instilled in us extraordinarily well. But it didn't occur to them that there were other things that their kids might struggle with. Yancey's parents had achieved one step of the American dream, advancing to the middle class and escaping the city for the suburbs. Yet segregation remained a fact of life. Yancey's older brother, William Ford, was shot in 1992 by a white mechanic after an altercation at a car repair shop. William's friend, Ken Myers, was a witness. I remember him going into the yard and somebody coming out of the shop door. Immediately, words started getting exchanged. The kid turned, 
went back in the garage and made a left. The minute Ford walked to that garage door, I heard a pop. And I said to the guy, I said, what the hell was that? Do you guys have a gun here? Yancey details the aftermath of the killing when the legal process stalled out. Here's Yancey's mother, Barbara, still full of emotion two decades later as she remembers meeting with the police. This is what I can tell you from what they said. I did not feel that we were received as parents of a victim. Okay, we weren't received as parents of a victim. We were received as um, folks being informed that an investigation had to be conducted. Yancey reflects on how the case impacted her parents. Day by day, you hear that your son is being investigated. Having grown up in the South, where the cops and the Klan were one and the same, My parents didn't turn to the police for protection. They had already felt that the police had turned their own son into the prime suspect in his own murder. Strong Island is a film you'll hear more about later this year when I interview Yancey Ford on Pure Nonfiction. Now, let's turn to Sundance's World Documentary Competition of 12 films. We're listening to music from the film Tokyo Idols. Japanese director Kyoko Miyake covers the phenomenon of teenage girl groups who perform in competitions almost like Pokemon. They cater to adult male superfans who spend endless sums of money for brief handshake meetings, photos, and internet chats. There's an undercurrent of sexuality at the same time that the girls are being marketed for their purity. Tokyo Idols pulls back the curtain for us to see the work that goes into this fantasy. Even more strenuous is the work depicted in the film Machines, directed by Rahul Jain, and set inside an Indian textile factory. The Sundance program note aptly compares the film to the photography of Sebastio Salgado for its artful observation of hard labor. The title machines applies to the equipment that makes so many jobs obsolete, but also to the humans whose lives are consumed by mechanical routine. Watching machines, you can understand why so many struggling Indians migrate for work to the rising economy of the Persian Gulf. The country of Qatar is the backdrop for a documentary called The Workers' Cup that brings a unique perspective to preparations for FIFA's World Cup in 2022. When Qatar was selected to host the Games, the news generated tremendous excitement in the region. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup But in order to build Qatar's stadiums and facilities, the country had to recruit thousands of construction workers who are housed in camps, cut off from the rest of society. 
The immigrants from South Asia and Africa arrive with dreams that are quickly undone by reality. To boost morale, companies organize a workers' soccer league. American director Adam Sobel embeds himself with one of the teams. In this scene, an Indian middle manager named Sebastian has concluded that the league is a mockery, in his words, and he gives a pep talk to the players. Don't make barriers inside you. It will demolish you. We are coming from different family background. And if we are rich in our country, we will not come here. It is hell. It is hell. And it is only for rich people. It is not for us. We don't have survive in our home. So we came here for earning something, achieving something. We should be good human beings. That is the most important thing and that is not happening in the world wide. When we started this game, I thought they want to boost this game in Qatar. They want to participate these guys in the Qatar. It is just mockery. Doing some arts or some photograph in the newspaper and showing the, the white people we are doing perfect here. They have a very big pressure because they are abusing. They are abusing humans here. We have rights. We are not slaves. We have the rights. The Workers' Cup shares a quality with several Sundance films that illuminate the sacrifice lives that make our economy possible. I'll mention one final Sundance film. This one is on the lighter side, from Ireland. It's called In Loco Parentis, directed by the team Niasa Ni Kinan and David Rain. Set at an Irish boarding school, run by a quirky couple nearing the age of retirement. We follow the teachers and the students over the course of a school year. In this scene, headmaster Dermot Dix leads a small classroom of grade school students through a discussion of gay marriage. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was same-sex marriage. Disgusting food. It's just like... It's wrong. So tell me why. Because it's just not right. You think it's obvious, but yet, why has the Irish Parliament decided that it's a good thing for all Irish people to vote on? Ellen. I think that it's fine to be gay. Like, it's their decision, it's their life. You're basically making the point that it's fine to be gay, and therefore, do, do, you, do you think it would be okay for two gay people to get married? It, now, Keelan, George? Like, a man and a woman are made to be married, because, like, it, uh, God, he made a man and a woman, not two men or two women. But, George, we don't know that God exists. Oh, yeah. We have no proof that there is such a thing as God. Also, is marriage natural? How many other animals stay together for life? Wolves. Wolves, do they? Lions? No, no, no. One lion has about five or six wives. So. So, but George, think about it. Think about it. Um, marriage itself is not is a man-made idea, right? It's man-made. Everyone thinks that gay is weird and that gay is just something that people shouldn't talk about or that it's, it's not good to do. But sometimes it's better 
to be gay than to be single. The film is called In Loco Parentis, and this is music by its composer, Eric Abacassis. Coming up, my interview with sales agent Josh Braun after the break. If you're new to pure nonfiction, we hope you'll explore our archives, including interviews with filmmakers such as Werner Herzog, Ava DuVernay, and Alex Gibney. Last fall, I spoke with Morgan Spurlock, who recalled his debut film Supersize Me and the buildup before its Sundance premiere. Before we went to Sundance in the beginning of no, or beginning of December, there was a a cartoon that somebody sent me from the Park Record, where the lunar lander the, or the Mars rover had just landed on Mars, and so there was a cartoon of a Mars rover and a Martian coming up to the Mars rover saying, "Hey, I'll show you some really cool Martian you know Martian rocks if you can get me tickets to supersize me." And that was a cartoon in the paper that somebody says, "I don't know if you saw this," and I was like, "That's amazing." I just got chills telling you that story. Because people were like, the movie sold out so fast. Everybody's talking about it. So at that point, we we thought we had that we thought we were going to have a great experience, but we had no idea what was going to happen. You can hear Morgan Spurlock's interview on episode twenty-seven. Subscribe for free on iTunes or listen at purenonfiction.net. My guest this episode is Josh Braun. He's a sales agent, also known as a producer's rep, who represents filmmakers to negotiate their deals for distribution. He belongs to a small tribe of specialists that include agents at bigger companies like WME, UTA, CAA, and Synetic Media. Some sales agents come out of law school. Josh took a more circuitous route, starting out as a musician with his twin brother Dan, who still works beside him. They came from a countercultural family. Their father, Saul Braun, wrote for Playboy, and authored a book called The Catalog of Sexual Consciousness. I met Josh in his lower Manhattan office exactly one week before Sundance. I started by asking about his upbringing. I was born in New York, and I grew up here till I was 11, and my parents decided to move to the Berkshire Mountains and start a school. And we had gone to a school um, called Children's Community Workshop School that my parents had some involvement in, and it was best described as like a free school slash hippie school slash there were no classes slash what we learned was essentially you know how to make a camera with a pinhole in it and we learned how to play capture the flag in central park 
Those are the primary uh, courses. Not really math or history. There was no math. There was a there was a British system called the Cuisinaire rods that were based on you know blocks and cubes, but we never learned traditional math at that stage. There was definitely no traditional classes involving you know history or writing or spelling or anything like that. So for three years we went there, and it was basically a complete failure in education for us. My parents decided that the logical response would be to go up to the Berkshires and get us out of like the evil city where we were starting to hang out with the bad kids and start another school that had the exact same curriculum and spend another year learning absolutely nothing. (laughs) So that's kind of, you know, up until I was 11, I didn't have any real education and my grandmother interceded. She, you know, came to visit one time and realized that none of us knew how to write. And we were basically like a bunch of sort of morons and (laughs) She said, these kids are idiots. Like, we have to get them in a real school. So we went to, like, an exclusive private school in sixth grade uh, or part of fifth grade. And that's the first time I had any real classes other than in first grade. What was that adjustment like? It was really difficult because we were also, like, the only hippie kids. Like, we had long hair and we listened to the kinks and everyone was, you know these upper crust kind of um, right-wing kids, not necessarily right-wing because it was a liberal bastion, uh, the Berkshires, but they were all very, you know, had crew cuts and they were sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, normal kids and we were like the hippie kids. As teenagers in the late 70s, Josh and Dan were enthralled by New York bands like the Ramones and the Contortions. Instead of going to college, Josh moved to New York and started a band called Circus Mort. Our ultimate goal was to be a successful band, but we knew in the early stages of the group that, you know, we sort of had a sound that was confrontational and also our group was heavily influenced by, you know, various substances that were available at the time and we had a lot of attitude and we actually alienated a lot of um, club owners. We had an incident at Danceteria where we created a percussion instrument that was filled with bottles and we had a hammer and they were sort of lined up so that, that you'd smash the bottles and you get the sound of the breaking glass. But it misfired and we smashed it and it shattered glass all into the audience and two people, including our own manager, got slashed in the face and so we were banned forever from Danceteria for that little stunt. Josh hopped from band to band. I knew a little about him once playing with Madonna, and I asked him to tell that story. You know, at that time, there was a building called the Music Building, and our band, um, Circus Mort, rehearsed there. And so it's a 12-story building, and each floor has five or six studios. We were in 901, and the, the band in 906 that moved in was called Emmy. And it was this, you know, kind of little more middle-of-the-road band with a singer named Madonna. And she came and knocked on our door one day and said, oh, you know, can I, I want to introduce myself. And, you know, everyone immediately had a crush on her. And she suddenly became like a friend of ours and was just like a down the hall kind of, um, you know, another, you know, kindred spirit musician. But then in another incredibly weird twist of fate, Madonna came into the studio uh, one day and said, you know, I just suddenly realized that, um, you know, I just found an apartment on the Upper West Side and the guy I'm renting it from has the same last name as you. Like, are you related to this guy, Saul Braun? And I said, is the apartment? Yes. Is that 270 Riverside? And 
I said, you're living with my father. That is really weird development. Um, okay. So she moved in with my dad and lived in the room that me and my twin brother grew up in. I should explain here that the Brawns once had a family band with their father called the Spinal Root Gang. The band had broken up with some bad feelings. You know families. But Josh's father wanted to put a version back together. And at a certain point, my dad said, you know, what if we ask Madonna to be the singer for the new Spinal Root Gang? You know, and I don't want, you know, Dan or Tony, because he was like our whole family dynamic was that one of us was always sort of in a fight with my dad. And at that time, I was the only one sort of in a good place with him. Um, many times I was not the one in the good place. Um, but anyway, to make a long story short, she said, I'd love to do it, but I want my friend Janice to join the band too. So I think it'll be fun for me and her to be the two singers. So um, we started this little group. We started rehearsing. We saw it as a re um, kind of imagining of the original family band, except with Madonna as the singer. Um, so we wrote two songs. Um, one of them was called We Live in a House, and it was a song that Madonna and I wrote together. And um, we decided we would record a demo. And my dad played saxophone, and Janice and Madonna were singing. Um, so we scheduled the recording. And on that day, I mean, I'll never know 100% for sure, but I'm pretty sure what happened was that Madonna told Janice that the recording wasn't happening. And so she could be the only singer on, on the recording. <laughs> and Janice wasn't feeling well. And I never knew for sure. My sense was that Madonna just wanted to be the singer and didn't want Janice. And in a way, it's great that it turned out that way because Janice and Madonna like didn't exactly sing together that well. It was sort of fun. But so when Madonna was the only singer on the demo, it actually sounded great. Mm. And my dad was out of town. So it was just the two of us made this demo. And then shortly thereafter, um, I would say within a few weeks, because we wanted to record another song that I wrote, um, she said, you know, it looks like I'm getting a recording contract, so I kind of need to drop out of the group, you know, with Sire Records. And that's it was right when she got that contract. How many months later was she the Madonna that we all know now? Um, she, it was probably within six months. There was a party at Danceteria for her single, the song Everybody. And she performed there and she invited me and, uh, and my dad, although he didn't go. And we went to that show and everybody had just started getting radio play. So it was like the first time she performed as like Madonna, maybe the second time. I think it was the first time actually. And it was sort of like at that moment, I mean, I always had her, I'd heard all her early demos and I always thought she has a very good voice. And it was, I mean, if you ever, the, the demo is locked in a safe and it's never been released and never been heard. But on the demo, she sounds different. Like her, her voice is a little lower hmm. and it's like, but it's a really, she was great. You know, she sounded great. And all the early recordings, she sounded very professional, more like almost like a Pat Benatar kind of voice and Emmy, which was more of a rock band. But then when I saw her perform at Danceteria on that night, I, it was the first time I thought, wow, I mean, she actually could be successful as this kind of more dance performer. Continuing with music in the 80s, Josh was in a band with Jim Jarmusch called the Del Byzantines. Sally go round, Sally go round, Sally go round, 
Then he and his brother Dan started a band called Deep Six. Here's their song, Stay Right Here, with Josh on vocals. pay for his life as a musician, Josh got a job with the company Fremantle that did foreign sales for TV shows like The Price is Right and Baywatch. He moved from copying videotapes to publicity to operations and finally landed in sales. By the late 80s, he had a double life, selling mainstream TV by day and playing in downtown clubs at night. Yes. And, you know, one of the moments that was most memorable for me was, you know, we, when our album came out, I never told anyone at my office that I was in a band or that I was playing. And I kept that part of my life completely secret and hidden because I didn't want them to, you know, when I would call in sick, it was because we were recording a demo. When I would, you know, say that I had the flu, it would be because we were playing in Chicago, you know. So we would kind of like everything was... But when our album came out, it was reviewed in the New York Times and it actually had a photo of me and my brother on the cover of the art section. And it said, you know, the caption said, uh, you know, Deep Six, uh, New York twins with something to say. And it was sitting on my boss's desk and he called me in and he said, I want to talk to you. And it was sitting right there. And he said, you know, I want to make sure you got those to tell the truth tapes out to Sydney because that's very urgent. I'm thinking... He doesn't even realize that there's a picture of me on the New York Times on his desk in front of him. That's how removed his sense that anything like that could be. So it was like this amazing moment where I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to keep going with both of these things as long as I can. But his music career was losing momentum in the early 90s. Josh says they picked the exact wrong moment to give up just before alternative music became a sensation. And at that point, I was going, I was very established in my job and I'd gotten a promotion to be, you know, vice president of sales, et cetera. So I was going to Cannes to go to the MIP and MIPCOM markets. And I would literally be staying at like the Carlton Hotel, flying business class. And then I'd go on these tours and I'd be sleeping on people's living room floors and, you know, driving for 24 hours straight. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I was at that point where I took a very hard look and said, the music thing is something that I love, but maybe it has to be something that I love. And this job that's become my career, I just have to embrace that. So that's what I did. The mid-90s was a booming period for TV sales. Fremantle had hits like Third Rock from the Sun and All My Children. But Josh wanted to move away from mainstream into more indie content and also to produce. He needed a push. I had a friend at the French uh, national network, TF1, named Benoit Runel, and he was a close friend on the you know, sales circuit. Mm-hmm. And we always had a joke that, you know, when I would express my various frustrations with not doing you know, the things that I want to be doing, he said, why don't we have an agreement that I will, have, uh, I will call a hit out on your life on January 1st, 2000. And the way, if you're still working there, then you only have yourself to blame if you get murdered. 
And so it was this running joke for a couple of years, you know, leading up to that point. And when it got to the year 2000, he called me and said, you know, I'm calling in the hit. So you have to make some very important decisions. Obviously he was, you know, joking, but I, th- I, I just said, you know what, you're right. I'm going to quit on January 1st, 2000. And so it didn't happen to fall on a Monday, but when I got into the office on January 3rd or 2nd or whatever, I quit. And my everyone was shocked. Everyone in the industry that I was friends with was shocked because it was a time when things were robust, but it was also in that sort of just right when the internet, the early part of the internet was having a little bit of a mm. difficult time and media was, you know, there was a lot of um, mergers and acquisitions. But I just said to myself, if I don't do it now, I have to have sort of a five or 10 year plan of like reinventing myself to move to the film business, which is what I wanted to do. After Josh left Fremantle, he took over producing John Pearson's TV show Split Screen, covering the independent film scene. Here's Pearson on the first episode. Hi, I'm John Pearson, and I'm not here to sell you any tube socks, but I did have a hand in selling Spike's debut, She's Gotta Have It, and launching other first features like Roger and Me or Clerks or Slacker. You know, these films, whether they come from Austin, Texas, or Brooklyn, New York, or Flint, Michigan, or a New Jersey convenience store, they're just busting out all over. And this show is about them, warts and all, the art, the heart, and the enterprise of the American independent film. Pearson had pioneered the role of producer's rep and wrote the best book on the subject called Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes. Josh took inspiration to use his sales experience for films closer to his heart. He joined forces with his brother Dan in the company Submarine Entertainment that now spans sales, producing, and even small-scale distribution. I asked Josh to describe his strategy when selling a film. It's all, you know, looking at all kinds of elements of how do you sell the film? How do you find the right distribution? You know, is there, do you show anything early? Do you show anything at all? Is there a trailer? Is there a poster? Um, How do you talk about it? What are the talking points for the film? Do you talk about it? Sometimes our advice on certain films has been don't say a word. Mm -hmm. Literally don't talk about it. That really was the most successful with Man on Wire, Hmm. which was a film where we just decided, like, rather than trying to hype it, we wouldn't actually, because it's, you know, the description speaks for itself. It sounds like it could be very esoteric and could be very small. If you just say, oh, it's about this crazy guy who tried to walk between the, you know, two World Trade Center towers. But our strategy that we recommended was don't talk about it, literally don't talk about it. So people would ask me about it and I would say, I. I can't really talk about this film. I think you should see it. And it was, we hadn't really done that before, but it definitely worked because people were curious and they were even mad at us. They were like, what do you mean you're not going to talk about it? You know, going back to just our role, it's it's going to be customized with every film. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a certain film that we think will benefit from a lot of hype, you know, then we'll embrace the hype. And a film you mentioned, uh, Morgan Spurlock earlier, when we were talking before we started, and that's that film, Supersize Me, was a film that, you know, the hype became a hype machine, and we embraced the hype completely. And mm-hmm. we thought the film delivers in a big way, mm. and the hype is all happening. So that was like, go with it 100%, you know, and that worked really well for that film. Mm. But, you know, every film that we take on, even if, if we think it's a smaller film, 
you know, we doesn't mean we aren't going to try to get a great deal. And some sometimes smaller films become bigger films. That does happen. You know, we thought of Searching for Sugar Man maybe as a smaller film. That was like a great example of a film that in the earliest days of seeing it and Simon Chin, who we'd worked on with Man on Wire, brought it to us and he basically said, I don't know about this one. I don't, it's like, we think it's a great story. And I watched it and I was like, I love it a lot. I only can go on that I know other people will, but you have this obstacle of like, this guy Rodriguez is a performer that nobody knows. You can't, you know, there's definitely has been a tendency and it's been shaken up a little bit by some films, but the tendency that you boil it down music documentary to how many units, you know, in the most crass way, like how many units did the artist sell? And, you know, if you can't guesstimate that it's going to at least attract those people, mm -hmm. then it'll never work. And this was completely off the radar because there was no sales and no, it was just, as you see in the film, you know, he was very obscure. So we had to go into the mode of, we know it's a great film. It works as a great film. So we didn't even try to sell it as a music doc in a way. It was just like the great story. But, you know, as you know, our goal was to be very quiet about it and clandestine. We weren't going to give it a big push. We thought in similar to Man on Wire, we should just let people discover it. But then Sundance confounded our plans by making it the opening film. Hmm. So then we had to sort of come clean and say, yeah, you're going to love this one and it is great. It's just, you know, we hoped you would discover it on your own, but it's the opening night film. So you kind of get a clue that the festival believes this is a real winner. I think the mythological part of producer's rep, which is somewhat expressed in John Pearson's book, uh, Spike, Mike, Slackers and Dykes, is this archetypal Sundance experience of a film premieres and there's a buyer frenzy of, uh, of interest and you stay up all night and uh, negotiate uh, deal terms on a napkin and there's a big announcement the next day. Does that happen anymore? It does happen and it's happened a lot for a lot of our films and we want it to happen. The buyers don't always want it to happen. So a lot of there's a push and pull. We've, you know, because we're in a good relationship with most all of the buyers that we sell to, you know, in a way it's a skill that you have to figure out a way to tell every company that's not getting the film that they're not getting the film they want and then the next day try to sell them another film and that's you know a part of the challenge but the reality is that a lot of the buyers literally say now can we please not do this all night like it's we're just getting too old for this and you know in the end it's not often are we can't make a decision and say okay let's talk tomorrow because multiple people want to buy a movie and that's why those things happen um, you know, occasionally if there's a situation where we've been in situations where like everyone is saying that, like, we don't want to do an all nighter and we're, we just have to like, we can't push it, but you know, often we want to push it cause that sort of is, you know, you're in an environment at Sundance where there's a lot of films for sale and the next day there's going to be 20 more that are premiering or 10 more. Can you describe for me the dynamics in a situation like that? Can 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 you pick as an example a, a film where you can share some of the details of, of what went down? 
I mean, I'm thinking of a film like 20 Feet from Stardom, maybe, where, you know, it was another opening night film for whatever reason. We've actually had a lot of, we've had a, a, an unbroken uh, record um, for no particular reason of having um, opening night films at Sundance for the last five years. And we have one this year called Whose Streets. So the record continues or the pattern continues. With 20 Feet from Stardom, we had the feeling for sure that it was potentially a big deal, would get people excited. Um, and we thought there would be multiple, multiple buyers. And so it's the opening night. And we ended up um, being in a situation where there were three or four very serious suitors who were ready to start talking about a deal. But it wasn't 10 companies. Like we thought maybe everyone would be in on it. Some companies that we thought would absolutely love this film and would be going crazy for it said a version of it's a wonderful film. It's kind of like a VH1 behind the music. You know, we don't think it's theatrical. You know, good luck. It's not for us. And so in the end, we're going to sell any film to one company. So even if we're if we're negotiating with three or four people, that's a good thing. It's not it's very rare that, you know, 10 companies are pursuing mm -hmm. one film. So as long as we have one, we're in good shape. If we have two, we're in better shape. And if it's three, then it can be that dynamic of really kind of figuring out what the filmmakers feel comfortable with, um, with uh, having the luxury of different choices. Um, but 20 Feet from Stardom played, and then it was a triumphant screening, and three or four companies identified you know, that they wanted the film. One of them said, we have to go eat dinner, and you know, we'll check in after dinner. The one who ended up buying the film, which was Tom Quinn's Radius label at the Weinstein Company, was the most aggressive. They were the ones who kind of said, we don't want to, we want to get in a room with you and we want to close the door and not leave. So, but two other companies remained serious and um, uh, they... So we basically did our thing, which is to set up meetings with these companies and have the filmmakers hear their pitch, understand what they want to do with the film, um, how they would handle it, when they would release it, might they support an awards campaign, et cetera, et cetera. But inevitably, you hope that maybe it all sort of plays out and you can wrap it up by midnight, but you know, there's a lot of other things going on. But on opening night, it's a little more feasible to do this that one did end up being another late nighter and the three companies we were going back and forth with all three of them until about four in the morning and Morgan Neville decided that he wanted to close the deal with radius. So we got into a, you know, exclusive negotiation because they went up to a number. So we were sort of hovering in, you know, these sort of mid six figure range, mid to high six figure range. And they went to a higher range and said, if the number looks like this, can we just close the door and try to work out all the other details? So we called the other companies and said, we're in this range, so we're gonna enter into an exclusive negotiation unless you tell us right now that you're willing to go there. And they said, well, we're not right now, so if you have to close, you have to close, but you know, we wanna stay where we are. So that isn't always what happens, but then we kind of knew that we wanted to close the radius deal too because we weren't necessarily gonna find a competitive pricing scenario from the other players. And so two or three hours later of intensive arguing and, you know, some difficult moments, we ended up closing the deal. Mm. And it's tricky because it's like to be careful what you wish for. You know, you want 
to start the festival with a huge sale and stay up all night, but then you have to get up two hours later <laughs> and you have four more films premiering on Friday. Now, now with four other filmmakers who have uh, higher expectations for what <laughs> Of course, every distributor wants a sure thing. The catch is, it's impossible to predict. Last year at Sundance, Josh represented Wiener, the documentary about Anthony Wiener's sexting scandal. The punchline is true about me. I did the dumb thing, but I did a lot of other things too. But buyers weren't sure what to make of the film. Yeah, there were multiple companies. You know, there was more buyers interested in Wiener than there were for 20 Feet from Stardom. But a lot of companies said, oh, no, this is a New York story. It's about someone that's, you know, no one likes. And, you know, there's no way it's going to work theatrically. There were definitely doubters for that film. We try to be, you know, somewhat unemotional about, like, when someone passes, in a way, it's just, like, information. It's like someone passed. They're no longer possible. There were, like, 13 companies we're talking to. Now there are 12. Let's boil it down, get to what's real. We're talking a week before Sundance 2017. Uh, you know, what do you think will be the marketplace factors this year that, you know, that you're paying close attention to? Well, I will say that our company and my personal um, kind of tastes and interests like tend to veer towards pop culture subjects. Um, so when a year like this, which feels like a very kind of determined effort to have the pro programming reflect political issues mm -hmm. and topics that are very relevant for the transition of our, uh, the, you know, the new regime, shall we say. Um, I think that we looked for films that we think can work within the context of like a different dynamic, which is maybe like, you know, issue films, political films, um, environmental films have a newfound urgency. Mm. And so films like Chasing Coral, which is, you know, from Jeff Orlowski, who did Chasing Ice, which is not a sequel, but it's sort of a continuation of the same ideology of showing something in a very, like, actually in his case, beautiful but terrifying way that can affect change, but is also a great film that has, you know, sort of uh, an urgency to it in the storyline. Or a film like Nobody Speak, which is the documentary about the Gawker Hulk Hogan um, lawsuit. That to me is kind of the, you know, in many ways, the perfect storm of like, has these big pop culture references and elements to the story, but has an incredibly important message that I can't imagine anyone wouldn't, you know, feel good about getting behind, which is freedom of the press, freedom of expression. And in this new regime, as I mentioned earlier, I feel like it's not, I don't think it's like a subtle observation that these issues are going to be very important with our, you know, whatever he is. <laughs> um, so within that, you know, I feel like there's a trend, but then we do have this one film, Dina, which I um, feel like is kind of the one film that isn't in that landscape it's really more of a, a personal film with like a love story at the heart of it that's incredible it's cinematic and it's in a way it's great for us to have like we don't want to have just sort of issue films and not that every film in our lineup is, is an issue film but that one is the most clearly sort of about the filmmaking about the storyline about the relationship portrayed in the film 
And so I think, you know, I, I would hope that Sundance, you know, is sticking to their identified mission of, you know, reflecting what filmmakers are doing and they're not just doing films about issues, even though a lot of the films at Sundance are those type of films. Uh, and I wonder what it is about being in this space that you take the most satisfaction out of. Well, let's put it this way. When I, when I left Fremantle and I just wanted to be a producer, I didn't want to do sales anymore. I'd done it for 12 to 15 years. And when I started getting pulled back into the sales world, it was like, you know, the mob, like to pull you back in. Um, what I realized is what was making the details. I mean, I like the details, you know, I feel like it's almost like a puzzle that you put together. And once mm -hmm. you, it's the satisfaction of you found the final piece, you put it in the puzzles done, but it's, of course it's, it's the films. Like, you know, the thing that you, know, you do this for 10 or 15 years, you're going to see things that are not good and a large volume of things that are not inspiring or, you know, feel unoriginal or just aren't at the level or even a topic that we've already covered in films that we've handled. So even if it's good and we know we can make money from it, sometimes we'll pass just because we don't want to go back and repeat the same terrain. And that's harder to, you know, try to be mindful of those kind of things because we've been around for a while. But I liken it to like when I first saw the film Spellbound, it was just another sales company wanted to work with us and basically said, you know, if you want to work on this and take the lead, we don't want to do it. So just take a look at it. And they basically said, like, we see it as a very small TV deal and nothing more than that. But, you know, that was in the early stages. And so I got this DVD of Spellbound and put it in my machine and it was spellbound and it was amazing. And that was like a light bulb moment when I thought, well, if I see something in a film, cause I immediately said to myself, this is not a small TV sale. This could be something really big. And so that was the opportunity. And a lot of it is just recognizing something or getting passionate about something that maybe it's obvious or maybe it's not obvious, but if I feel excited and it sort of revives my interest and my thrill of doing this to discover you know, another great film that you just don't know what it's going to be. You put it in and suddenly you're seeing Searching for Sugar Man. You're seeing Queen of Versailles. You're seeing whatever, just like an incredible movie that you can't believe that you might have the opportunity to work on. And that makes it fun every time. I want to thank Josh Braun for talking to me. If you're going to Sundance, look for me on January 23rd at Sundance TV headquarters, where I'll be moderating a panel at one o'clock. You'll find more information on our website. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, web designer, Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo, social media master, Jordan Smith, and executive producer, Rafael and Ahausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.